This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. And I know this personally as I use Squarespace for my website and find it so easy to use with plenty of great templates to choose from to make it look super engaging and professional, even for a technophobe like me. And if you need any more encouragement, here are some of the amazing things Squarespace offer. You can start a completely personalised website with the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint AI. You can also sell your products and services with an online store. From hand-knitted decorations to digital content or services, Squarespace has the tools you need to start selling online. Squarespace supports entrepreneurship by helping you to easily manage your clients and invoices in one streamlined workflow. Head to squarespace.com forward slash fail 10. That's fail 1010 for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code fail 10 to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. Asim Chowdhury is an actor, writer and director. He's perhaps best known for co-creating the BAFTA award-winning mockumentary sitcom People Just Do Nothing. The show follows the fortunes of a pirate radio station with, as they proudly proclaim, over a hundred listeners and Chowdhury stars as Chabadi G, the station's hustling entrepreneurial manager. The show catapulted Chowdhury to international success. Roles followed in the Wonder Woman movie, Charlie Brooker's Bandersnatch, and if you've ever been on a BA flight and paid attention to the safety video, you'll recognise him instantly as the inept director of a sketch involving national treasures, Sir Michael Caine and Olivia Colman. Chowdhury is rapidly approaching a sort of national treasure status himself. During lockdown, he put out a comedy podcast called What a Sad Little Life which took its title from a legendary episode of Come Dine With Me and released music, including the rap track Brown Skin, which tackled Britain's racist past and present. Capable of both great humour and great thoughtfulness, Chowdhury's jokes often contain a deeper message. Apart from the time on Chicken Shop Date when he said his ideal woman was a combination of Tiffany from EastEnders, Vanessa Feltz and Mary Berry. His talent is multifaceted, and Chowdhury is refreshingly unbothered about staying in his lane. When people say I can't do something, it drives me on harder, he once said. Just like Chabadi, who thinks he's a player, a hustler, a ladies' man, I'm the eternal optimist. Asim Chowdhury, welcome to How to Fail. Wow, my head is massive right now. (laughs) It's massively inflated. Thank you for that introduction. That was very, very nice. It's such a pleasure. And it's such a pleasure to have you in my house in real life, wearing jeans that you told me not to mention. Yes, I'm wearing ridiculously (laughs) flary jeans that I felt very confident in the morning. And I looked in the mirror and I thought, I'd like a cool Japanese kind of guy. And then I left the house and I realised I look like an absolute twat. But confidence. 
Yeah. You can rock anything with confidence, blind confidence. I think you look great. Thank you very much. And people just do nothing, which is what most people will probably know you from. And it's a program that I'm obsessed with because I love Spinal Tap. And I think you yes. do too, don't yes. you? Spinal Tap was a huge influence on people just do nothing. It's odd because people think, well, well, well hold on a minute. Like they're actually good at music. I don't get it. Like, because... You know, like with Spinal Tap, they were all quite gifted musicians, right? Like, you know, that kind of lick my love pump and yeah. like, they can play, they Stonehenge. can sing. Yeah, Stonehenge, <laughs> like they're good songs, but the content is ridiculous. It's, it doesn't make any sense. It's, you know, that's the comedy. But we were always fascinated about doing something bad, but well, mm. you know, and it's, you have to know how to do it properly to kind of spoof it in a way and kind of satirize something you have to know about the subject so Spinal Tap was a huge reference for us yeah just like Spinal Tap we also tour in character and we do music and I think with music comedy there's always that kind of sometimes it can always be a bit cringe you know you're like oh god they're gonna do you know they're trying to infuse these two things it doesn't always work but like I said Spinal Tap was a huge influence because they got it bang on you know I once interviewed Spinal Tap in character. Wow. It was amazing. It was one of the highlights of my journalistic career. When did you do that? It was around the time that they released a movie. Wait, how I interviewed old are you? Christopher Not, Guest. In 1982? <laughs> how old are you? <laughs> Not you're that You look really good if you're like Wait, 63. Or they were going on tour. You mean like a new movie, right? Yes. <laughs> it would have been like, it would have been 2008. Okay. Something All like right, that. Right, yeah. right. Wow. Anyway, this isn't about me, is it? It's about you. So it started out on YouTube, didn't it? And, and what I love about People Just Do Nothing and what I think is so obvious when you watch it is that it comes from a genuine friendship group. How did you all meet? I went to college with Hugo, who plays Beats. He was this kind of cool music producer kind of guy. I met him through his ex-girlfriend, actually, and she was like, my boyfriend's a sick producer. I was the battle rap champion in my college. I'm very proud to say I've still got the trophy, use it as a doorstop. And yeah, I linked up with him and then smoked a lot of weed and we thought we were going to do music, but we just ended up kind of messing around. And then through him, I met Sipo, who's Grinder, and then Hugo and Steve went to school together. So they always knew each other. And then, yeah, we were supposed to be doing work, but then we kind of messed around doing sketches. And then there was this documentary on BBC Three called Tower Block Dreams which was about pirate radio. And, you know, we just watched the documentary. We became absolutely obsessed with it. And we just thought, let's start basically trying to satirize and spoof that world. And the boys had done pirate radio before. And obviously we all come from music. I was doing film and broadcast in terms of my degree and, and at college. So I had a camera. I started filming it and putting it up on YouTube. And it just slowly started getting this really niche, but quite a cult following. And I remember one of the first celebs to like find out about us was actually Lily Allen. And she tweeted, oh my fucking God. And just put the link of the episode on. And I remember we got like, you know, back then it would have been insane. We got like 10,000 views in one day, which is mind blowing for back then. And this was early days YouTube. You now we're talking like 2009, 2010. Yeah. And then we got spotted by John Petrie, who works for Ashatala, who produced The Office. John actually sent me a message on YouTube and was saying, hey man, I really love your stuff. And you know, can we meet? I work for Ash Atala who produced The Office. And at the time I used to get a lot of kind of hate comments, you know, cause people thought it was real. People thought, you know, that these 
fucking losers, these bums. And we used to get comments like, oh, get a job, it's sucking off the system. You know, oh, this is why immigration's gone bad. You know, all this wow. kind of, like a lot Almost of hate. Almost like the ultimate compliment in a way. In a way, we were reading them laughing our heads off. So I used to get a lot of messages and I thought, okay, this guy's taking the piss. And when he sent the message saying, Asha Tala, the producer of the office, I literally replied back saying, fuck off, mate. And then, and then he was like, no, please give me a call. And this, and then we met them and then, yeah. And then we got commissioned for a pilot. And it was a long process. The BBC didn't really trust us because we were not actors, didn't go to drama school. None of us were writers. So we kind of had to learn. So they gave us the pilot and then we had to wait for a year. In season one, we got four episodes. And then season two, we got like five. You know, so it was a very slow process. And in a way, I'm grateful for that because I think if it all came at once, I think we would, would have been just not ready because we were quite, you know, immature and very inexperienced. So it was a blessing in a way. Talk to me about the character of Chabadi G and how much he's based on your own dad. He's based quite a lot. I would say that he all the good bits are based on my dad, the kind of eternal optimism, the kind of entrepreneurial thing. Like my dad is, you know, till this day, unfortunately, he's still a flipping wheeler dealer. He's always got new businesses popping up. And he's just one of those guys where I didn't really know what my dad did when I was younger. You know, in the 90s, I remember in Hounslow, he would have this red Mercedes, you know, lowered, personalized number plate. His name's Ijaz and everyone called him Jazz. So on his number plate, it just said Jazz Man. And I was like, what the fuck does my dad do? I didn't know. Like he had a restaurant, a takeaway. Right next to it, he owned like a minicab business. And then next to that, he had an internet cafe. He was like a really shit Tony Soprano, like just quite a low level. But he was like the boss. And I remember walking through the high street with him. It would take us an hour because every two minutes, oh, Jodhri Saab, shaking his hand like he's on fucking done. And my dad's like this tiny little Pakistani guy. How like he's he not intimidating. I think that's he so is a hustler. He is, if he was here right now, you would all be in love with him within 10 minutes. You know, he'd be, oh, hello, mate, you're right. He's very, even the way Chabadi says hello, that my dad, when he answers the phone, he's got this kind of white voice that he pulls on. He goes, hello. <laughs> and it's just so amazing. And so many aspects of, you know, the way my dad always gets his W's and V's, you know, because he kept on saying, oh, this bloody COVID, man, this COVID. And it's just everything he does, everything he says is very, very funny. Yeah, I would like to say all the good bits are based on him. You know, he's a really sweet man. It's funny, you know, but I mean, like I said, well, I didn't know that he was a bit dodgy, you know, when I was a kid. And then, you know, after my parents divorced, my mum was, and as I got older, my mum was like, you know, your dad did this. And, and I was like, what? It's kind of comedy there, but there's also a little bit of kind of darkness there as well, because, you know, he did do illegal things and he did get in a bit of trouble. So I guess I took that character and I took all the good bits and I was like, and it's not just my dad, it's also the guys I grew up with, those kind of hustlers, those guys who think they can get you anything, the boys who think they're, you know, God gifted to women and all that. So it's a combination of things. And of course, growing up watching Alan Partridge and David Brent and Del Boy, you know, it's kind of all of that stuff is in your head and you kind of think, okay, I think I can do something here. So yeah, it's, it's a bit of a cocktail of a lot of things. So talk to me about little Asim, I mean, young Asim, because you might have... <laughs> That's what my fiance calls me, little Asim. <laughs> <laughs> when it's cold it's cold it's all about angles isn't it really lighting yeah yeah bit flabby jeans yeah, like flabby it's jeans. Just, yeah. she calls me that as well <laughs> but when you were growing up in Hounslow yeah when did you discover you were funny and when did you realize that could be a career I mean maybe you didn't no I really didn't I did not know at all because I just thought I was annoying which I was I was very annoying I was very attention-seeking I loved Michael Jackson. So I remember having a karaoke machine 
and literally going down to my parents and my sister, sitting them down and doing like, you know, man in the mirror and doing all the dances. And they're like, all right, you know, and I think I was annoying. I think I was a nuisance to people. Like I remember going on a coach trip, like a family coach trip. And again, getting on the mic and literally people being like, shut up. Like it was just annoying. You know, I was an annoying child, but I was also, I look back on it and I go, actually, like I was very, very productive. And I would do things like make music videos in year seven with my dad's camera, get all my mates around, make full studio albums in my mom's bedroom with a mic like this and a sock over it for the pop filter. That's one for the studio engineer, he likes that. And it became very soggy because we were spitting. And I was writing all my mates raps and then I was battle rapping as well. And I was doing all this stuff at like year seven, year eight. And I think back now and I think if my little brothers and my little sisters were doing that at that age, I would commend them. I would go, fucking hell, like, that's so, you know, you're really taking the initiative there. But for me, it was, you're messing around. And because I was shit at school and I was, you know, smoking weed. So I was seen as a bit of a waste man. And that's what my first YouTube channel was called, Waste Man TV, because I kind of embraced that. And even when I was filming People Just Do Nothing, I remember my mom, my, who swears now that she always loved it and she was a big fan. She used to, I used to say, mom, she's like, what are you doing? Get a job. And I was like, no, mom, I'm going to the park. I'm filming this comedy thing with, with my friends. She was like, oh, when are you going to grow up? When are you going to get it? To be fair to her, she had a point because I'm living there like a bum. You know what I mean? Like I'm not contributing, but a part of that as well is like, I'm trying I'm actively trying to do music videos and I was doing weddings and people just do nothing and music. And I, I was hustling. I was always hustling. I guess I get that from my dad, but they saw it as he's messing about. But I think if you saw a kid doing that now with YouTube and TikTok, you think, wow, they're really creative. You know, so yeah. it's bizarre. It was a different time. It's very interesting because clearly you had a really strong work ethic. It's just that it yeah. wasn't categorized as work necessarily in your parents' eyes. And I wasn't academic at all. Yeah. You know, I, I loved English, but apart from that, was terrible at maths, didn't understand science, just academically didn't work. I, school was too much fun for me. There was like girls and weed, you know, for me, like that's what it was. It was like friends, girls, weed. Like, I just loved school, I had too much fun. So the academic side was not there for me, but the creative and social side was fantastic. And... We're going to come on to the academic side because oh, it, yeah. it, it pertains to oh, one shit, of your yeah. failures. Yes. But <laughs> I wanted to ask you about confidence because on paper, the way that you express what you were like when you were younger, it might sound like you were a very confident child, that you were able to do all of these things, even though your parents didn't necessarily approve. But also, I know that a lot of people grow up using humour as a sort of defence mechanism. And I wonder where you put yourself along that scale of confidence and insecurity. It's an amazing question, because through my rap battling, which, you know, I really love doing because it was about being quick-witted, it was about having thick skin. And I remember my first battle rap I did, I think I was 15 or 16, and it was at this event called Jump Off, which was a very intimidating rap event. And it wasn't like today's rap battles, you know, where you have all these kind of nerdy uni guys and they were multi-syllable. It was like really London, you know, it was hoodies up, everyone kind of, you know, screw facing you. I remember going up there when I was, I think I must've been 16 actually, not 15. And I remember battle rapping there and I remember absolutely, getting slaughtered the first time I went there. You know, the guy was fat jokes, terrorist jokes. I mean, I got torn to pieces, booed off stage, absolutely humiliated, went home. I was with my mate and I remember I was really, I felt sorry for him because I was like, sorry, man, I let you down. And he was like, nah, man. And even he was a bit embarrassed, like keeping his distance from me. Horrible experience. But I went back 
and I won a few battles and then I lost and I went back. So I did it a few times. And then I started developing this thick skin of being like, I'm going to preempt what they say now. So I always had fat jokes ready. So, you know, if they call me fat, I, would, I remember I had this one line that I would always go to and it was something like, yeah, I know I'm fat. I know it's life destruction. I'll get your mum to suck my dick and give me liposuction. Sorry. Sorry, 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 sorry. That's but, amazing. But I'd always use it. And then yeah. if it was a terrorist line, because, you know, around then it was like, you know, just a bit after 9-11. So that terrorist brown people thing was... You know, like, ooh, Bin Laden. Kind of, it was a bit more prevalent. And also you could get away with it. So I, I remember someone said something about that. And I said something like, yeah, this is a battle. You're going to get murked. Your mum loves me. I've got her rocking the Taliban t-shirt. Like, you know, so I had stuff ready for all this stuff. And I, I just think back, 16 years old, doing that for my confidence and for being quick-witted and freestyling. I mean, I did that at 16. And I think all this comedy and acting stuff, like, this is nothing. In terms of intimidation, yeah. here I'm, I feel in a safe space. You know, when I'm on set or on stage, it's a sa- that wasn't a safe space. And I did that when I was 16. So if I can do that, then all the rest of the stuff, you know, is there. And 100%, it was used as a defense mechanism as well. The comedy, the kind of, I'm going to take the piss out of myself so much, you will have nothing to say to me at all. But at the same time, I think it's also this thing of wanting to please others and wanting to make people laugh and I really think really funny people aren't people who kind of run the show and make it all about themselves. Those people are quite intense for me. I think really funny people is when you can bring in everyone and you're having fun together and you're letting people join in and you're bouncing off each other and there's synergy and there's rhythm to the kind of, and it creates a nice atmosphere. So I love doing that as well as a kid. So, and you know, my family, we had a lot of trauma and, you know, divorce and all kinds of stuff going on in our family. So I was- How old were you, sorry, when your parents divorced? um, I think I was 11 or 12. So it was young and I used to use that comedy to kind of make everyone happy. You know, I, I remember one of the, this is really like really sweet, but it's a very vivid memory of mine where my mom and dad were always fighting. I remember me and my sister, we were just like sick of it because they were screaming. And I remember going into the garden and getting this twig and putting a Tesco bag on it, a white Tesco bag and running into the living room and being like, peace, peace. And it was like almost doing it as a funny thing as well. Like I've got a peace flag, you know, like stop fighting. So comedy was always there to kind of heal and protect as well. And with that comes confidence. Cause if you know, you've always got that card and you you know, you know, okay, I'm funny. I know I'm funny and I can pull it out when I want to, you know, it's the kind of thing. So it was a very useful tool and still is. To this beautiful. Day. That's such a beautiful way of expressing it to heal and protect. Yeah. I wanted to talk to you about brown skin, your rap chat. Thank because, you, noticed. Yeah, I do oh have my, brown skin. I, <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk to you about your brown skin. Thank you. Can you imagine? Yeah. If I said, that would be so awful. I've just noticed it's you're brown. It's a song you released. Yes. It's a song you released. <laughs> and I mentioned it in the introduction because I listened to it in preparation for this interview and it's really good. It's so good. It's powerful oh, and serious. Mm. Like you are making some serious points. Tell us why you wanted to release it. One thing I regret, actually, I don't regret, you know, when we were going back to school, I loved English, but I also loved history. I loved history. And I had a fantastic history teacher who was a legend in our school. His name was Mr. Quirk. He's probably going to listen to this, actually, because his son is a journalist for The Guardian who actually gave a five-star review to people just do nothing. And he mentioned the whole thing that my dad taught Chabadi G in school. I remember his dad, I mean, Mr. Quirk was, he had this Robert De Niro intensity, right? Where he was more powerful than the headmaster, 100%. You know, when you just have those dons, you know, he was a bit older. And I remember the way he taught was just so interesting because he always used to say, when you'd answer a question of his, he would say, well, yes and no. 
you'll show you there's two sides to everything. And I remember once he gave me this death stare, which I will never forget. I remember I ran across the street for school. You know, I was late. He nearly ran me over, right? Because I didn't use the light, you know, lights. And he just went, and he horned like that. And I thought, fuck, it's Mr. Quirk, you know? So then I had him in like period four and I was dreading it. And I sat there. He didn't look at me. He kind of waited, you know, a few 30 seconds. And then he gave a whole speech about the value of life and didn't look at me once. And I was like trembling. But after that day, I was always safe on the roads because I was like the way he explained it. But he was amazing. And, and he did follow the curriculum, but I went to a school in Hounslow called Heathlands and it was, I would say, around 85% Asian, right? So I would grow up in Felton, which was a very racist white area. You know, there was a lot of NFs. I used to get beaten up a lot when I was a kid. Yeah, a lot of racism, a lot of, yeah, it was quite a scary place. When I was growing up, it kind of got better. I remember having to run from my bus stop to home because I had to pass this pub and there was always these kind of EDL kind of geezers there, you know, and it was like proper NF. So it was a scary place to grow up in, but... I remember Mr. Quirk always said that, you know, he goes, I can teach you about Henry VIII and World War II, which we did. But he also said that I'm going to encourage you to research your own history too. He said, you know, research the empire and the British Raj. He goes, this is not in the curriculum. But he urged us to ask our parents and our grandparents about their experience and why are we here? Because, you know, we're only second generation. It's not like we're fifth to sixth generation. Like, why are we here? Why are we in England? Why are we in this tiny little island? Like, we don't belong here kind of thing. You know, you do ask yourself, you look around and go, what? So that led me to kind of researching my own history and, you know, asking my grandmother and my granddad and my mom and my dad and, you know, researching the empire, basically, the British Raj. And I always felt like, why has this not been taught? I think there's this romanticized version of the empire, which I understand it was, you know, it was a massive empire, it conquered most of the world, but there's a lot of trauma there. There's a lot of nastiness, you know, like in all history, there's good and bad. So it led me to kind of researching it. And brown skin was just something that I wanted to kind of translate because yes I am a comedian and I do love comedy but I do also feel like I have a voice and I feel like I come from a place where there is a lot of history in terms of immigration Heathrow, Hounslow, Southall these are all around the country people know these with the Southall riots and the immigration and that that movement in the 70s you know it's all the racism and there was so much so I felt like I wanted to say something and but do it in a fun way like I wanted to like you know make a banger but also when they're listening to it, be like, and I was really proud of that because it's, it's quite tough to step out of this Chibuddy G role. Exactly. And being like, ah, look, Chibuddy G's rapping. You know, yeah. that kind of thing can be a little bit testing. So I had to make sure it was quality and I had to make sure I got my message across without being preachy. Because I think that makes people just run a mile when you're tr telling them, hey, you know, this kind of thing. So yeah, it was, uh, I'm really proud of that song, actually. You should be, you nailed it. And Thank talking you. of what you were and weren't taught at school brings us on to your first failure, okay. which is that you got kicked out of your drama class and left school with two GCSEs. Yeah. Tell us about being kicked out of your drama class first. Okay, so, I mean, I don't know if she will ever... I mean, this is a very, very brilliant, successful podcast, so I hope she doesn't hear this, but she might. My drama teacher, I won't say her name. She knows who she is. <laughs> <laughs> totally over it, as you can tell. Not bitter at all. She was a very, how do I say, a very kind of rigid woman. And really bizarrely, because she's a drama teacher, and I was, my idea of drama teachers were like, hey, like, let's be free. And that's why I did drama GCSE, because I thought, and I've never done acting before, but I know I'm a bit of a show-off, a bit of attention seeker. And, you know, a lot of fit girls were doing drama as well. So I thought, you know, why not? 
so I was in my drama class and she just did not like me. You know, like just, I was getting jokes in the, in the class. I, of course I was being a bit of a shit. You know, I would come in late, you know, smelling of weed. I'm sure I was a nightmare, right? But before I just speak about it, let me just speak about the importance of a good teacher and the importance of a bad teacher. I had great teachers in school, you know, Mr. Quirk. There was also my English teacher who I'm still friends with till this day. His name's Mr. Walsh, absolute legend. He used to listen to my rap songs that I'd make, I'd bring them in and he was a big NWA fan and everything. And I was a shit as well in his class, coming in late, smelling of weed. He made effort with me. He would say, there's something there with you. He read my short stories. He said, he's a talented kid, but he's a dickhead. You know, he would say that to me because you're a shit. You know, he'd be swearing and all this stuff. And I loved him. And because of him, I got a B in English, one of my only proper GCSEs. So the importance of a good teacher, Mr. Walsh, Mr. Quirk. Now this teacher, unfortunately, she was a bad teacher in my opinion, because what she did is that she crushed my confidence completely. And like I said, she just didn't give me a chance. And then basically what happened is my friend Nick's, right, who kind of looks a bit like me, you know, similar kind of, you know, short, fat, whatever, uh, Asian, he chucked a rubber at the teacher's head, right? She turned around and she saw me. And because she just hates me, she was like, ah, she went mad. Like, I mean, talk about a drama teacher. <laughs> it was fucking drama. She was like, oh my God. Like, felt like, you know, act like she got shot in the head or something. And she was like, ah, oh. <laughs> like, on her knees. She was like, ask him, get here now, go to the office, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, obviously, I'm not going to snitch on my mate. You know, I took the rap for him, obviously. I'm not a snitch. You know, I went to the headmaster's office and they were trying to get me done for abuse or something. Or, yeah, like ridiculous, really ridiculous. And then she kicked me out of the drama class. And obviously this is the GCSE. So I said, you know, I'm really sorry. I wasn't aiming for you, miss, blah, 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 whatever. And then she said, okay, she's, we worked out a deal. She said, look, if you try really hard, if you come in on time, you have to earn your grade. And I love that. I love that she was giving me, because it was the first time she gave me a, a kind of a shot. So I was like, okay, great. So I was coming in every lesson on time, really taking it seriously. I remember my group's play, I wrote and directed it was a spoof on The Godfather. It was called The Poppadom Father. Really funny. You know, it, <laughs> it was really, really well, kind of everything. Everyone loved it. And I gave myself a small role, literally a cleaner who just comes in one scene because I thought there's a chance I might not get. And obviously I was writing and directing it. So brilliant. Everyone got A's. And then at the end, I, I went to speak to her and I said, look, how have I done? What do you think? And I thought she's going to say, well done. And she said, no, you haven't done enough. And I was just, I felt crushed. And then my whole group all wrote a letter to her and to the head saying, please, can you grade Asim? Because it's out of order. He's done all this work. She still didn't grade me. So then after that, in terms of acting, I completely stopped. I thought, well, I, I must not be good at it. She crushed my confidence to a point where I went more into the kind of the music and, you know, all that, and even just behind the scenes more. And I started doing media studies and film and broadcast, not acting. I thought, Acting's not for me because I can't do it because I tried my hardest and wrote and all that. I couldn't do it. So that was really heartbreaking. And that really stuck with me. And that was one of the, I'd say, my first massive failures in life. Because, you know, when you think you're really good at something yeah. and, you know, a person in authority, a person in power kind of tells you you're not. Because that's what she basically said. You haven't done enough. You're not good enough. You know, I'm not going to grade you. And I got a U, you know, I got ungraded in drama GCSE. So it, it felt like a great injustice and it still hurts because I still think of, you know, what a horrible person to do that to a, a child. Let's be honest, you know, the kid can be a shit. He can be a, a pothead and disruptive. It's a child, you know, it's a 15-year-old, 14-year-old kid, you know. So 
that that would really felt like a big failure and knocked my confidence for years when it you came to performing. Thing. Yeah, and I just think you know it wasn't cool. And know? also because it was all triggered by something that you didn't do, <laughs> and then to be punished yeah. <clears throat> so disproportionately, even if you had done it, the injustice. There's like layer upon layer of unfairness yeah. there. I think the rubber thing was kind of irrelevant in a way because I was a shit. She hated me. She was kind of looking for an excuse to kick me out. That's why she was so over the top. But it's quite funny. Actually. I remember I was telling this story in America once and I said, I threw a rubber and they were like, you got condoms in school? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, no, sorry, an eraser. Yeah. You know, rubber. But yeah, it was, yeah, you're right though. I didn't even do that. And my, I remember my boy felt really bad as well. He was like, Bravi, because I'll just tell her I did it, man. And I was like, you know what? It's not even going to make a difference because she won't believe us. Mm. She'll go, oh, you're sticking up for your power. Kind of. She was just quite nasty. And I know it's that cliche of those who can't do teach, which I don't think it's you know true, but she did seem very bitter. And God, this has all turned to a big attack on her. Isn't no, it? No, She's no, already you listening. Haven't, you <laughs> haven't named her. And I completely understand that what you're saying is you internalized that failure, even though that failure was actually hers. When you're at school and you're at an age where you're so open to so much influence, it's very hard not to internalize that failure yeah. because you are literally graded as a person to yeah. every single year. And what was the knock-on effect then with your other GCSEs? Do you think it did have an effect? I don't think so, no. I mean, I wasn't, like I said, I wasn't, I didn't take school seriously enough. I honestly do think I just had too much fun, which is a good thing. I've got wonderful memories from school and still got the same friends, the core friends, you know, we're like brothers. But yeah, I had too much fun. And I, and I go back and I tell my little brothers and my little sisters and my little sister now, don't do what I did, you know, because they look at me and go, well, you know, they call me Baijan or Asimbai. They were like, oh, he had fun in school. Look at him. He's, you know, so... And I said, no. I said, I wasted so much of my life. I Nothing happened to me in my life until I was like 26. You know, I wasted so much time just because I didn't take life seriously. I just didn't... It's a two-way thing as well. People don't take you seriously as well when you don't take yourself seriously. And, you know, people don't... Because they're like, well, he doesn't care. Even though I'm excelling in a creative field which I think is so brilliant these days where I think we can recognize when children are academics or they're creatives or they learn in, they learn in different ways. And I was learning in a hundred percent in a creative way and in a visual way. I was watching, I'm a massive film geek and documentaries and studying all that stuff. So, you know, and music, but when it comes to, you know, maths or science, I mean, I'm lost. I have no idea. Yeah, it was interesting. So you got a GCSE in English and what was your second one? I think, you know, because you get two, don't you? It's English language and oh, English... Got two for English. Got it, <laughs> yeah, got it. Okay, I think got that's it. What it. Yeah, I think um, that was it. You've listed it as a failure, but it also feels to me that you don't regret it because you learnt so much creatively and you made such good friends. Yeah. Would that be fair to say? Or if you had your time again, would you do it differently? I think I would. I think I would. I think I did have too much fun. And I actually think I was quite insensitive in school as well because I remember I met this girl maybe it was around two, three years ago. And she's lovely. You know, I used to, I used to speak to her, not that much, but, you know, I was like, oh my God, how have you been? You know, blah, blah, blah. And then she was like, oh, you know, no, I'm fine. So proud of you and this and that. And then we were, you know, we were reminiscing and I was like, God, I was like, school was so much fun, wasn't she? She was like, no. She was like, I fucking hated it. She goes, I was depressed. And I was going, what? She goes, yeah. She goes, like all your mates were dickheads. And I look back and I thought, 
We were dick. Like, not me personally. Like, I don't think I have any a guilty conscience in terms of what I, I was always trying to be nice to people. But a lot of people I hang around with were dickheads. And I think I take that for granted that a lot of people didn't have a great time in school, even though she was academically brilliant and she's, you know, got a great job and everything. But she had a terrible time in school. And I think in a way I didn't take school seriously in that way as well. I mean, I was a child as well, so it's hard to be sensitive of everyone's. But I did realise that a lot of people were really, had a shit time in school. So everyone's experiences are different, but they're unique as well. So, but I think I was naive and thinking everywhere school was amazing. Well, for some people, school was hell. You know? And you left after your GCSEs, is that right? I, yeah, I left and I went to college. Yeah. So did you feel that you'd been labelled a failure then? Well, yeah, 100%. Because I didn't have enough GCSEs to get into the media course I wanted to do. I had to do a, what are they called? Not interim. B-tech? Yeah, like a B, but it's to get into the a foundation. Okay, got yeah, it. Was, I had to do a foundation to get into the B-tech, to get into the shit thing. So it was that level. And it was really hilarious because I went to school in Hounslow and West Thames is like down the road. It was notoriously known as a shit college. And it was basically the college where everyone who was not allowed in their sixth form went there. So when you when you turned up on the first day, it was like a reunion of the fuck ups. It was like, hey, there you are, you dickhead. You know. So it was actually really fun for the first year. Again, I nearly got kicked out because it was too much freedom. I remember just lighting up a cigarette and I know asking if I could smoke because obviously in school you had to hide it. But, you know, we were 16, we were legal. And my teacher went, yeah, sure, you can smoke. And I was like, wow. And then I remember not coming in or coming late or something. And I was like, sorry, miss, I'm late, taking the piss. And I, sorry, miss, I'm late, coming in, you know, eyes glazed. And then she would be like, ask him. She was like, you don't have to apologize to me. She was like, if you don't come in, we'll just kick you out. She was like, this is college. She goes, this isn't school. We're not going to chase you. Like, you know how school chases you like a child? You're a young adult now. And that really hit me. I was like, what? So wait, I can just not come in. It's your life. And that hit me. That I think that was a really a changing moment because I nearly got kicked out. And my parents actually came in and spoke to one of my teachers who was brilliant. Her name's Parvin, Iranian woman. It was my film studies girl. And she was so frustrated with me because she read some of my scripts and saw some of my potential. Again, not taking it seriously. And she said, look, we are going to kick him out if he doesn't. And she just said, he's got so much potential. She was the only teacher in my college to see that. Again, we go back to good teachers and the imprint they have. And my parents were like, what is this shit? Like, what is me? They didn't want me to do media studies because they were like, what the fuck? Because you remember, this is pre-YouTube. Yeah. Media studies, that sounds like a DOS, which it was. <laughs> I, I remember that time <laughs> as well, yeah. Yeah. Media it, studies and general studies were just like oh, the things. <laughs> yeah, come on, you know. So she really backed me and I love college and I did that. For, I got through that foundation year and then I actually did really well. got three Bs at the end of my B-Tech, <laughs> which is equivalent of three A-levels, I'm told. And... Uh, <laughs> So yeah, I mean, like I said, good teachers could just change your course. I mean, I don't know where I would have been if it wasn't for the Mr. Walsh's and Mr. Quirks and, you know, Parvin and people like this, you know, who really did. But for every good teacher, there was always a bad teacher who was kind of waiting for you to just breathe in the wrong way and they're going to give you detention. You know, just teachers just didn't like you. They didn't like the cut of your jib kind of thing. And some teachers you could get away with murder with because they just love you. So it's that balance. And I think that balance is important because you can't just have all good teachers because then you probably get away with loads of stuff. You kind of need the good and the bad. I really love and appreciate that you've given a shout out to the good teachers because you're so right. They're so formative. They're amazing. (laughs) 
We're living in an era of information overload. We've more knowledge than ever before. But what do we do with it all? Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organise and rediscover the joy of play. It's a workspace designed not just for making progress, but for getting inspired. Notion is the AI-powered workspace where the everyday takes care of itself. Meetings have summaries, Docs find themselves and every question has an answer because Notion AI turns knowledge into action. And I know that myself because I once asked it to write an introduction for a How to Fail episode. And I have to say, it was so helpful and so convincing. Try Notion for free when you go to notion.com forward slash fail. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com forward slash fail fail and start turning ideas into action. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show. Notion.com forward slash fail. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. So now we fast forward a few years, and your second failure is that you got deported from America. Right. Okay. <laughs> Tell us about that, Asim. Okay, I'll be honest with you. I've never told this story before. Ever. Great, that's why music to my ears. Exclusive. Yeah, how to fail um, scoop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I haven't told it before is because it's quite a painful story and it's a very embarrassing story. So I finished uni, got a degree in film and broadcast, got a two one. I was very proud of myself. Shit, uni hated it. You know, liked it because I went with two of my mates, so we loved it. But shit, uni didn't learn that much. Saved up in the summer because we wanted to go to the New York Film Academy. You know, it was always a dream of ours. We thought, wow, New York, and you know, the New York Film Academy, it's going to be amazing. We'll do like a three-month course there, blah, blah, blah. No, one-month course there, but we'll go there for three months and we'll shoot films and music videos and, you know, just New York. It was like, you know, we're hip-hop lovers, so like going to the birth of hip-hop, it was like epic. Birth of the East Coast. The birth of the East Coast hip-hop, yeah. Yeah, not Snoop Dogg. Okay, all Anyways, right. So we're starting an East-West beef fair. <laughs> Bloody hell, God. They said Tupac, you know, bloody hell. You know, you're that gangster. I like that. So we went there, saved up a lot of money. You know, we worked hard. I think the course was around three and a half thousand dollars for a month filmmaking course, which is a bit ridiculous, but it's New York Film Academy. So we went there. We were living in a one bedroom apartment in Upper West Side. My mates, Alex's aunties, and it was three of us in one bedroom. And remember, we took turns of one week, someone's in the bed, one week, someone's in the sofa and one week, someone's on the floor. So it was like when your when your week came up for the bed, you were like, and it had mice as well, the apartment. So it was like, yeah, but you don't care. I'm 21 or something like that. I'm fucking loving it, you know, like best moment of my life. So we go to the induction day and we're kind of looking around and, you know, it's this kind of really shit room. And then there's all these people, there's all these foreign students everywhere. And then they tell us what we're going to be doing for the month. And it's like the most basic, like college level assignments with really basic equipment as well. Like we had better equipment on us. Like I just bought a 5D Mark II and like, you know, we had amazing lenses and really cool glass and we're going... Do you think this is a bit of a, um, not a scam, but you know, like when it's like, oh, I studied at New York Film mm. Academy, just to say you did it. Yeah. So the teacher was like, if anyone wants to drop out, you can drop out, but you have to drop out today and you'll get a full refund. So then we started thinking, should we just drop out, get a full refund? 
will each have three and a half thousand dollars, we can go and just make our own shit. Like we can go and get on a Craigslist and casting call and get actresses and models and like do our own stuff. Like that's so much more fun, right? And we had friends in New York as well, like rappers and everything. So we were gonna like build up a little network. So then we were like, okay. And then, so we decided to do it, but they said, but if you drop out today, your student visa is void in 14 days. You have to leave in two weeks. So we were going, oh, fuck. And I don't know who this guy was, but a dude just came up. Like, I don't know, he might have been in the janitor or something. He was like, hey, man, you know, there's a loophole. And we were like, what? He was like, yeah, man. He was like, you just got to go to Canada. Go to Canada and come back on your visa waiver, baby. And we were like, okay. So we Googled it and it was true. If you come on a visa, but if you go to Canada and then you come back on your normal waiver, it's fine. It's a loophole and it's a bit, yeah, you probably will get questioned, but it's fine. So we thought, fuck it, it's great. So we had two weeks in New York and then we were like, we're going to go to Toronto. This is amazing. So we left basically all our shit in New York, right? Went to Toronto for the weekend, two days. Had an amazing time in Toronto. Last night, I remember we watched Paranormal Activity, right? The film, it was out in cinemas. And we were just so inspired. Because, you know, like as for a filmmaker, being like, How? you know, the budget on that and like, they're genius, like absolutely genius horror film. Brilliant. And then we started thinking, we were in a Hooters reference and we were very drunk and we're talking, we're talking. And then as we're talking, we start getting paranoid and we're going, it's going to be fine tomorrow, isn't it? It's going to be like, you know, it'll be fine. They'll be like, yeah, it's, I'm like, it's, it's, it's a loophole, but it's legal. It's not, you know, they can't say anything. We've Googled it. We Googled it. And we were like, and the dude, the dude in the, you know, the, hey man. <laughs> I was like, he said it. He said, it must be fine. And then we got even more drunk. And then my mate suggested it, but we all followed one of the stupidest things ever. You know, we had our passports on us and he was like, he was like, bruv, he was like, you know what? He was like, shall we just fucking rip out our student visas and just pretend that we didn't even go to New York Film Academy? And I was like, that is a fucking sick idea. (laughs) So we all proceeded to rip out our visas really badly as well. So you could still see the, we left it in a beer glass in Hooters. And then we woke up the next morning, worst hangover, and being like, it's going to be fine. Right? <laughs> it wasn't fine. We went to the airport. The first look, he looked up and he went, what have you ripped out of this? You know, and eight hours in interrogation, eight hours, three or four of which was just me in a room on my own with no one coming to see me. I was writing rhymes and I was a rapper. And I had this business card from my barbers in Hounslow, right? And I remember after three hours, he came in. First thing he does, obviously they've gone through all my luggage on my bag. He throws my rhyme book on the table and I've got some lyrics about like the government don't love us, you know? So he's just got that highlighted. And then then he takes his business card out for this barber and the barber's name is Alba Sam, right? He puts the business card, sits down like this and he goes, who is Alba Sam? And I was like... He's like this camp barber from Hounslow. I'm sorry. And oh my God, went through all my stuff. That's terrifying. And we completely came clean to them. We said we were drunk. We got paranoid, blah, blah, blah. They weren't having any of it. We got deported back to London. There's a happy ending somewhat. Because, you know, it's a scam. People come on their visas and then they sell their visas to other people. And then they just disappear and they're in the country. We didn't know it was a scam. So we kind of did a scam without knowing it was a scam. And thankfully, my mate Marvin, he ripped it out, but he kept his visa. So if it wasn't for him, God knows what might have happened. And the British embassy didn't help us. They were kind of like, you're idiots. You've made your bed kind of thing. So got deported, went back to England. What happens when you're deported? You literally get on a flight then and there. Exactly. This is So all your stuff is in New York still. Yes, and I'm so naive and stupid. I thought I'm broke as well at this time. You know, we haven't got our refund yet for our course. Completely broke, not a penny to my name. (laughs) 
I remember going, okay, so are you guys going to pay for the flight for me to go? Yeah. And they were like, no. They were like, of course we're not going to pay for your fucking flight. Like, it's your fuck up. So that was £500. And I remember... I couldn't tell my mum and my dad. I just didn't have the heart because I just knew what they would say. They're just, oh, we told you, you know, media stuff. What are you doing, you idiot? And I remember having to ask my friend Alex, you know, who's still one of my best friends to this day. I remember him lending me £500 and he barely had that to give me. So, you know, we all did that. And I just remember us actually walking the streets of Toronto crying. And I remember like, my mate doesn't even smoke, never touched a cigarette in his life. And he's like, give me a cigarette, bro. And we were just smoking. I remember we were crying I remember seeing black squirrels everywhere because Toronto's got loads of black squirrels, which is really creepy. And they were just a very horrible... I never want to go back to Toronto. It's ruined it for me. They deport you to Toronto and then you've got to get back to... No, no, so I'm already in Toronto and then I'm going into the airport and the US embassy to get into America. They stop you there. they stop you there. And they say, fuck off, back to Toronto. Now you have to book a flight. I can stay in Toronto, but... I need to go home, don't I? I need to go home. I need to go to the embassy. I need to... So I went home and explained everything. And then I got a visiting visa, which was, you know, it's the same thing. And now I and we went back and we actually had a great time. We were there for three months and we shot all these videos. But now all the time I'm level two security. Yeah. It's a nightmare. And it's my fault for something very stupid I did. So that was a massive, massive failure. So I know you're saying it's your fault. So this is not an equivalent experience at all, but I used to be married to someone who had the surname Ahmed. Right. And as soon as we got married and I had that surname on my passport, I would get stopped every single time I went into America. Yeah. Taken aside. I mean, I wasn't even interrogated, but I was put into one of those mm. rooms yeah, yeah. where you have to wait to be seen. And they're mm. so mean to you. They are. And you have to leave your mobile phone. There's no way of getting in touch with anyone. Mm. And honestly, it's like a horrible experience. Yeah. And the only reason was because of that name in the passport. Yeah. Do you think there was a racial element to it as well? Not at all. The thing is, I've already got that on me, right? So even without that incident, not, I'm always going to have, I actually remember clean shaving before I went because I was like, I just don't want any trouble, you know, because a beard adds, you know, whatever, I don't know. It was literally just because of the incident, because these fucking passports with ripped out pages in them, it was just looked so dodgy. But of course, profiling happens all the time. But, you know, they tell you, they just say, it happens with everyone now. Anyone who's got that kind of name or is a father who's from Pakistan or Taliban, is all around there, Afghanistan. Like, you know, they just don't take any risks. They just, you know, and that, of course, is going to lead to profiling and stereotyping. So it's just something to be expected. But I mean, you seem very accepting of it. Yeah, because what, I mean, what am I going to do? (laughs) But I think I'm accepting of it as well because I know I fucked up as well. So a lot of it is my fault. But of course, the whole name stuff, it is ridiculous. But what can you actually do? It's the United States of America. I mean, it's like, you know, it's the country that banned Muslims, you know, to coming. I mean, it's not, I'm not surprised. And also, I think it's an interesting take because I'm 35. So I've only lived in a post 9-11 world. So, you know, as an adult. So I don't actually remember what it's like not being the guy who looks like the bad guy. I've always looked like the bad guy, if you know what I mean. Like, you know, before that, it might have been Irish or obviously black people have always had that stereotype and they've always had hardships or Jewish people. You know, everyone's had their... But post 9-11, it was like, the bad guy looks like you now. He's a brown guy with a beard, right? And a bag. I've lived with that. You know, I've lived with that stereotype and it can be tough, but... I'm also aware of it. Like, I remember I was on the train once after the 7-7 bombings. (laughs) I remember I had this bag. I was coming from boxing. I had my my boxing bag there. And there was this woman sat opposite me, this, you know, blonde woman. And she was like this, just not moving at all, just staring at me and looking at the bag. And I remember I felt so anxious because I was like, 
I felt like a terrorist. I felt like I was going to blow the fucking train. And I remember I went into my bag. She was going, and I just got my phone. I was like, got a banana out. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I just did, deep throated it with eye contact. It really creeped her out. <laughs> I was like, God, I don't know what. Is he a terrorist or is he, you know, like a porn star? I remember that. And that feeling, yeah. it's like also being a man, being a big kind of hairy man. I also feel that and I'm aware of that. I'm aware that I look like how I look like. I remember I was on a bus once at a bus stop. It was late. It was like 11.30. And with this tiny little girl was there. You know, she was, you know, I can't remember. She was probably in her 20s or something, but she was there. She saw me and I had my hood up and I had a big beard. It was cold. I felt her eyes on me, you know, so I kind of moved away from her just out of like, I don't want to scare you kind of thing. And she was like, and then we got onto the bus, you know, and then we get off at the same bus stop. Right, because we're going to the train station. And she kind of looks at me like, oh my God. <laughs> and then we get on the train and then it's fine. You know, we're separated again. We get off at the same stop. And then I, I remember I felt like going up to her and just going, I'm not going to kill you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would creep her out even more. So sometimes you just have to be aware of who you are, what you look like and what your perception is. And that's fine because it's society. I'm not saying it's right, but you have to be aware of it. And I think that's just being sensitive sometimes to others. And obviously some things are not on, but you kind of learn to live with it in a way. That deportation from America, did it feel very sweet when you got the British Airways gig for the safety video? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet some of those custom officers are going, that fucking guy, Al with Sam. <laughs> yeah, I guess it did in a way. I mean, you know, I mean, that gig's just mental because, you know, it, it started off as a kind of joke. Richard Curtis was writing this sketch. He was saying, you know, we've got this funny character, you know, that it's the director. He goes, do you think Chabuddy could do it? Because we did an Ed Sheeran sketch where I played the director with Richard Curtis. And that was it. And we met and we wrote the stuff. And I, I had no idea that it would have that kind of impact, you know, because you forget how many times it's played. And it's shown because it's on every single kind of long haul flight. So it's like your face is being seen by literally millions of people every day, you know, I mean, maybe not every day, but it was massive. And I'm really proud of it as well, because I think it did a job of being funny, but also some vital information that normally no one ever listens to. You know, when the safety stuff comes on, you're kind of like on your phone or whatever, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, it was very bizarre. But yeah, I guess it was a little sweet nod to like, you know, yeah, this is the boy that got deported. Do you <laughs> so, get free BA flights? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, because it was for charity, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it was for comic relief. But BA do look after me. There's a limit. There's a yeah. limit. You can't take the full piss. But when I go on there, whether it's free or not, they are so lovely because they're so used to me. You know, when I'm doing the bit with Gillian Anderson, I go, thank you, Gillian. That's a thing. If you ever go up to anyone in BA, just say to anyone who works there, just say, thank you, Gillian, and they will crack up. It's like a thing. Okay. They all say it to you. Thank you, Gillian. Thank you, Gillian. <laughs> yeah, no, it was a great, great gig. Oh, so nice. And you must get people on BA flights, just other customers doing double takes as well. Yeah. What's it like take. when you get recognised for the oh. right reasons? For the right... What do you mean, the wrong reasons? Well, like being deported <laughs> from America would be the wrong reason. If like. It's lovely and it's a very strange thing and I don't have it to a point where... You know, my fame isn't at all out of hand. It's, you know, we're not household names. We are still quite a cult niche show, which I like. I like our level of fame. I don't necessarily, I wouldn't want it to be any more because at times it can bring, I'm going to tell you a great story about, but most of the time I love it. I mean, you know, when you're respected and liked for your work and someone comes up to you and they tell you that they really like your work. And even my favorite ones are when they say I was in a really bad place and I'd feel shit and I'd put on your shows and it would just 
take me away from that place and that really is the best comment you know what it's like it's like when you've well, that's helped very generous of you to say but no, yeah, yeah no, no, when no, something's meaningful and it makes a connection yes. and, and it's yeah. escapism as well it's like i'm watching this i'm listening to this i'm not dealing with my life right now like this is pure escapism and that's in a way that's what we're here to do we're here to help people escape it goes back to me with my family telling jokes and cracking jokes because i want everyone to be okay so in a way we're doing the same thing because we kind of want to entertain and we want to what was it heal when whatever you know heal and protect yeah heal and protect so it's like that's the best thing but sometimes i do get some people coming up to me and doing quite dodgy chibadi g accents which here's my thing right have you ever noticed like how you know i could do an italian i could go oh, and it's fine yeah. right and you know you could do an italian accent you could do a spanish accent or whatever russian maybe not russian accent not anymore but <laughs> <laughs> but you know like the whole thing with it or can you do an indian accent right a white person doing an Indian accent is still a little bit like, or doing a Chinese accent or something. It's a bit like, ooh. It's deeply out. inappropriate. It is, but here's my thing. So obviously I get it. People come up to me and they're like, hey, Jabati G Manuel. And I'm going, oh my God, stop. What are you doing? Right? So I get that. Terrible, terrible accents. And a lot of these people are young. So it's, you know, it, there's no offense meant. Yeah. They're trying to emulate a character they love. Yeah. right? And they think I'm that character, which I am, but also I'm not. I'm at him. But you know, here's my thing with that. If you can do a good accent, any accent, it's brilliant. It's never, ever going to be offensive. And I will tell you that because I have met many, many, many white people who do brilliant Chibadi G accents. One of my best friends, Hugo, who plays Beats, me and him kind of came up with that kind of voice together because we used to prank call brothels and QVC with, you know, we used to go, oh, Lord, oh darling, it's Chibadi G here. That's how we started, actually. That's the character in terms of the voice and stuff. We used to do prank call people. And his accent's brilliant. I mean, I could close my eyes and it would be just like a brown guy. And I'll tell you what that does. That shows me that you have a level of respect, yeah. that you've actually learned that. Because it's an accent, but also it's a rhythm. It's a dialect. It's regional. It's specific. You care enough to you, pay attention. Exactly. Yeah. And I care enough for my Chibadi accent. It's a very specific accent. It's not a, hello, how are you doing? It's not a call center accent. If you go to Hounslow, you will hear people talking like that, using the same slang, the same lingo, the same, the W's and the V's getting mixed up, that hello, you know, all that stuff is around that area. So it's specific and it's detailed. And when you take time to learn that and portray something with that level of detail, you know I care, right? So if you're showing me you care, it's completely fine. But sometimes it does get a little bit when they don't and it's just a complete. But then again, I'm not expecting everyone to be brilliant at accents and learn all the, you know, some people just want to, you know, I'm sure Adam Partridge, aha, you know, it's like yeah. some people just want to say the thing, right? So most of the times it's lovely and one day no one's going to give a shit. So very, very grateful for anything. And it's a blessing really, you know, because, and also, you know, I don't do shit stuff. You know, imagine if you were like, I don't know, like, a, you know, you did really shit stuff. Let's say you were like a... Piers Morgan. Yeah, <laughs> well, do you know what I mean? You, yeah. You'd be a little no bit offense, like... Piers, no offense, Piers. Do you know what I mean? If you yeah. were not super proud of some of the stuff you did, that must be hot. And you were famous. Yeah. Oh, God, if you want to, like, a reality show star or... Some are great, don't get me wrong, but if you're known for something that's not, like, people are like, well, would you... know, like, these days, people are just famous. I remember my little brother's mate, I asked him, what do you want to do when you grow up? And he was like, I want to be famous, man. And I was like, yeah, but what, famous for what? He's like, you don't need to be famous for anything, bruv. He's like, I just want to be popping in it. I want to be famous. I want to be 30. And I was like, bruv, like, what do you... It's bizarre, but that is the thing now. People just want to be famous. So it's strange. Let's finish with your third failure. Because mm -hmm. I'm having so much fun talking to you that I've yeah. totally forgotten that there is a third one. Sorry, I've been mouthing. I'm sorry. No, it's you're not. And it's 
just been a joy. But your third failure is that you got robbed for all of your camera gear. Oh, was God. it the same camera gear that you left in New York and that you had to fly back? <laughs> no. I, no, actually, yes, it was. Oh, stop. Fuck, you need to get yeah. rid of that. No, no, it's no, bad no. energy. That's no, you're, oh my God, you're absolutely right. It was the same camera. Because that was, it was a Canon 5D Mark II. Okay. Yeah, because that was my camera. So, you know, when I came back to England, broke, looking for a job, had a degree, couldn't get a job. Because especially in that industry, you know, no one's going to employ a camera operator and editor with no experience. So what I was doing is I was trying to build up my showreel and be like, no, actually, I've done this and I've done this. You know, it was really hard, especially back then. It wasn't the same networking. You know, YouTube was a thing, but it wasn't like, you know, we didn't have Instagram. And I think Twitter was a thing, but it wasn't really a thing thing, you know. Facebook was around, but, you know, fuck Facebook was, you know, it's just, there wasn't, you know, TikTok and all these amazing apps to just push your stuff out there. It was a real struggle, I remember. It was really tough. So I was doing a music video. I used to do a lot of hood videos, right, which were £200 a pop, very, very budget. And I had a YouTube channel specifically for it. Someone contacted me and said, hey, man, I like your show reel. And you know, I called him up and we had a chat. And he was like, yeah, I just want a simple kind of like hood video. It was like me and a few of my boys. And I thought, yeah, all good. So then, you know, they told me the place and time. And I normally take my friend Alex with me, you know, the guy who lent me the 500 quid. I'd film with him because obviously I've got like, you know, around four or five grand worth of stuff on me, right? Like in terms of the camera and the lenses. Called him up again, seemed super legit, checked his profile, everything was all good. And it was in Plasto, you know, which I was like, oh, fair enough. <laughs> I was like, straight away, I was like, oh, Plasto, a bit dodgy. So I got the train there and my friend Alex couldn't make it. He pulled out on the last day and I was like, so broke. And I was like, I need this 200 quid. Like I need to pay my mum some rent and I need to pay my phone bill. And, you know, just, I was broke. So I was hustling. So I was like, I have to do this. So I went, waited for the guys. And then they were like, yeah, we're just around the corner. And I was like, okay, cool. Like completely not expecting anything. As I turned the corner, three guys with balaclavas, right? And I got a knuckle duster right to my nose here, which I've still got the scar there. And my nose just popped open like that. And I was completely stunned. I didn't know what was going on. And they were going, you know, and then I instinctively just swang for one of them, hit one of them purely kind of out of, you know, retaliation. And then they pulled out a knife and they said, give us a bag. And I gave them the bag. And I remember I was just so shocked. Because, you know, when you get, well, I, mean, I don't know if you've ever been hit in the nose like that, it doesn't hurt. It's got a very numb feeling. You feel numb. Your whole face just feels like, mm, what's going on? Then I did the dumbest thing ever. I was covered in blood. I did the dumbest thing ever is that I chased them. I chased the guys with the knives and the knuckle dusters because they were young. They looked terrified. The look in their eyes, it was a setup, you know, it was, I got completely set up. And I was running through their estate and I'm thinking, what am I doing? And then I realized I'm losing a lot of blood. I should probably say, and then I, loads of lovely people came up to me. I was near the bus stop and they were giving me tissue and, you know, they called the ambulance. And I remember one of the scariest things ever was going into that ambulance and instantly he took my top off and I thought, bloody hell, calm down. And I was like, what's going on here? So I, was like, I normally skip this part in the porn. And he started checking my body he, for stab wounds. Stab. Yeah, because I didn't know. Because he said people who get stabbed, they don't know because especially it's in that shock situation, it's the adrenaline kind of thing. Anyway, it was horrible, horrible, horrible. And my camera wasn't sure. It took ages for me to get my insurance money. But I was so broke after that, my face was completely messed up for, you know, a couple of months. I had to quit my job because I couldn't come in. I was so broke. I was so down because what they had taken is literally my livelihood. Like that was my tool to make money. And your identity. And my identity. And, and actually, I had already started filming people just do nothing at that time. So on that memory card or in one of the memory cards, there was footage of people wow. just do nothing, which is probably out there. Some idiot probably bought it for cheap. You know, I don't know. 
and probably the lowest I've ever been in my life, to be honest. It was massive failure, you know, like, and it, it was out of desperation because I would have normally never gone to somewhere like Plasto in a council estate on my own. That's just dumb, you know, looking back. And I think, man, but desperate times, you know, desperate people do desperate things sometimes. This is a really weird way of how life works out sometimes. I kind of had to hit the lowest of lows to then, like I said, I was doing People Just Do Nothing. I think three months after that event is when we got the pilot commissioned from the BBC. So it was kind of a very bizarre things. And then I got my insurance money and I got my camera back and all of a sudden I'm filming a pilot for the BBC. I always think whoever those dickheads were, because I'm sure they were children and I'm sure, you know, they were kids, they were teenagers. I'm sure they were opportunists and this has happened. The police told me this, a known scam through YouTube. People say we want music videos, they set them up. But I just always thought about, did they have they ever see me on TV? And they go, that's the guy, <laughs> that's the guy we robbed, you know? So a massive failure, but it taught me to be more wise. And the thing is, I knew there was dangers there, but I also knew I needed money. I've never been a guy to ask for handouts. You know, I never like asking my parents for money. My friends, I hate it. You know, I really hate it. I've always been a very, very independent man. So that was a huge, huge fail, but followed by a huge, huge win. You so know? interesting. So. And I think when you hit rock bottom and then you pick yourself up, it teaches you such important emotional resilience. Oh, yeah. And I started off in the introduction reading out a quote that you'd given where you describe yourself as an eternal optimist. Mm-hmm. That eternal optimism must have been really challenged at that period in your life. Oh, yeah. I mean, could you imagine, you know, it's like not only have you been physically, brutally attacked, emotionally, your spirit's completely beaten down, you know, because I I worked hard for that camera gear as well. You know, we worked just a lot of money, you know, we built up that stuff and worked really hard. And, you know, like I said, academically rubbish, but the work ethic was always there, you know, and it was, I was trying to find ways, creative ways to do stuff. And I could have easily sold drugs. Most of my friends were drug dealers in Hounslow. And I actually remember being quite envious of them and being like, they had so much money and they were lovely. They would pay for me and pay for this, pay for that. But they would also be getting robbed and their houses getting raided and just not being able to sleep. And with my dad's kind of past, you know, my dad went to prison when I was younger for fraud. So that really scared the shit out of me. And I actually remember going to see him at Scrubs and seeing my dad there, my, like I said, my dad's a sweet little man, you know, just being like, what's he doing there? You know, it's like, that scared the shit out of me, you know? So I never did anything illegal in my life. I was always like, I'm smart enough and creative enough to find a way, you know? But it was frustrating because you see all your friends doing all these things. And I'm here, like, I went to uni. I you know, None of my friends went to uni, all the boys I grew up with. But I also think, you know, quick money goes quick. And all those boys you know, now they're struggling, you know, like not all of them, but a lot of them are struggling with their, what they, they don't, they're not doing what they want to do because they were making money back then. But that lifestyle, I never really wanted to live that. When you were in that very dark place, what helped you through? I know you then got off with the pilot, but how did you get through those days before that happened? I think a huge part of that was I moved back in with my mum because she was pregnant with my little sister. So around that time, my sister must've been around one or two And I'll be honest with you, when my sister was born, because her dad wasn't around, I kind of took on the father figure role. And I think that helped me mature really quick. You know, I I can't remember how. She's 13 now. So she was born in 2008. So yeah, I don't know the dates exactly. But I would say that responsibility of being a big brother and being the kind of, you know, pseudo father figure 
that kind of made you could be like, all right, look, you know, you failed, you got to fail, you took a loss, let's keep going kind of thing. You know, it, did, it didn't stop me. I was trying to get the insurance money to get my camera back. You know, I was like, I need to get my camera back. I'm going to go and do weddings and sketches and blah, blah, blah. So she was a huge motivation and she still is, you know, to this day, you know, she's going to be 14 in May. And I've been that father figure for for a long time. And that will motivate you. You know, if you have a, a you know a young girl, you know, looking up to you and, you know, you have to be that guy. You have to be the guy, you know, and even though it's not your daughter, but, you know, you have to play that, you know, and of course there's boundaries and it's not your responsibility in that way. That is my mother's responsibility, but that will definitely motivate you to be something and provide and all that. So I, th- I would say her and, yeah, just a sense of responsibility. I think that's important. I never really had that before. You know, I didn't really feel responsible for anyone apart from myself, really. My mum's very independent. My dad's obviously a hustler, a wheeler dealer. My sister's very independent. So I never really felt responsible. When, when this little girl was born, I was like, oh shit, like, you know, you know, her dad's not around, so I'm going to have to step up. So I would say, yeah, my little sister. Do you want kids one day? Yeah, I do. I do. Yeah, 100%. I feel like I've done a lot of the dad stuff already with my little sister, so I feel like I'm I'm ready. But yeah, I'd love to have kids. I think a life without children, obviously it's different from different people, but I just think they bring a light and energy into your life that not many things can replace, you know, not many things can live up to, you know. And that sense of responsibility, you know, it's like we all need a purpose in life. And I mean, we find it in different ways. But yeah, I mean, children are amazing. You know, I'd love to have children. Do you have any children? I don't yet and like to have children you very much yeah Yeah. that's been a whole long struggle right but my husband has three children so i have lots of children in my life oh wow that's amazing which i'm very blessed with and i totally agree with you i mean i think it's not for everyone I've so often wanted to be someone who didn't want children because it would have been easier for me. I used to think I was cool and be like, I don't want no kids. Yeah, yeah. Fuck them kids, man. (laughs) But I think you're right that for me, it would bring an extra element of meaning and purpose and just seeing the world anew Mm -hmm. through an entirely new person's eyes. I interviewed Alan Cumming on this podcast recently and one of his failures was not having had children. Wow. And he said that he'd had a conversation when he was thinking about whether to do it or not with a friend of his. And he was like, I just don't know whether I could do it and what's it like. And his friend said, you've got dogs, don't you? And he was like, yeah. (laughs) And you love your dogs. And he was like, yeah. He was like, imagine a dog that can talk. Yeah. (laughs) true i I totally get it (laughs) yeah it is a sad thing yeah and i think when i see all my mates they're all having kids now and it's a lot of work they're always so tired and stressed of course but one question you ever ask parents and say you you ask them was it hard work fuck yeah yes was it worth it 100 percent. they'll always say yes it's the most important thing in a lot of people's lives but yeah you're right it's not for everyone and i wouldn't say that as a failure you know i don't think that's a failure it's timing it's opportunity it's you know there's a lot of kind of variables to it but i would recommend it to anyone and hopefully i'll have some soon as well pop some in the oven (laughs) awesome this has just been such a joy and really moving as well sorry yeah i think i spoke a lot i think i motor mouthed a bit so apologies for that i've got a bit of adhd so i kind of go my brain kind of goes i think you speak quite harshly to yourself about yourself that's something i've noticed about you you're not motor mouthing you're being really eloquent and just a dream interviewee. And you're also not fat, by the way. You keep saying that. and so I just, I'm fat. You're not fat. Oh, no, no, I'm girthy. There's a difference. No, we know. You, know, you I, keep referring to yourself as fat and no, I want you to stop doing well, I, that. No, no, listen. It's, I'm, I know I'm not fat, fat. And I know I'm a handsome man. It's fine. But you know what? I heard something brilliant on a... 
Not that there's anything wrong with being fat. Of course there isn't. And like I said, girthy. I've turned that whole thing into a sexy thing. Mike Tyson on one of the podcasts, I remember he was saying, Action Bronson, who was this New York rapper, and he was going, I'm a fair piece of shit, man. Like, you know, like how I'm doing, right? You know, it's a defense mechanism. It's blah, blah, blah. And then Mike Tyson was like, don't say that, man. Don't say that. And he was like, he was like, I'm joking, man. He's like, no. He's like, your subconscious doesn't know that you're joking. And exactly. I was like, wow. And I was yes. like, because I always take the piss out of myself. Yeah, you need and to stop talking your subconscious to your doesn't way. know that you're joking. So you're actually, you could be hurting yourself and believing your own kind of joke, even if you're going, oh, I'm joking. But your subconscious is like, leave me alone. I kind totally of thing. agree with you. And yeah. I'm not equating these two concepts, but it's the same thing with failure. If you tell yourself you're a failure and you internalize that, then it's very difficult to allow yourself to think differently. And what I always say is just because you fail does not make you a failure. It's actually the lesson is in how you respond to it. And you have been a perfect example of that because each one of these failures that you've spoken about, you have responded in such an emotionally resilient and wise way. Well, you learn more from your losses, don't you? You learn more from your... I love that you were going, you've been a perfect example of a massive failure. (laughs) (laughs) You absolute (laughs) dickhead. (laughs) No, no, I know what you mean. That's a great way of putting it, actually. It's that the failures are almost essential for growth in life. You know, I mean, imagine not failing. To not fail is to not try. I bring it back to, you know, the pure essence of comedy. Now, this sounds really wanky. <laughs> the pure essence of comedy. Like, for me, comedy is all about risk taking. I'll tell you what comedy is. Comedy is you're in a room, right? Something's happened. A thought comes in your head. Should I say it? Should I say it? It might flop. It might flop. It might, I might, you know, I'm going to say it. You say it, it could kill. Also, you could fall flat on your face. You could fail or you could be a fucking legend. And that little thing, a lot of people have it and most people don't say it because they go, but the comedian will just go, you know, and just that little minute little thing, that little taking the risk is what comedy is, in my opinion. It's just taking that risk. And I tell a lot of jokes that don't work. And I've also told jokes that fucking have killed the whole room, you know, so it's just that, that little risk that we should all take because everyone will fail and we all need to fail. And risk is another way of saying opportunity. Yes. I've loved our conversation. Asim Chowdhury, thank you so much for coming on How to Fail. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this episode of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, I would so appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. Apparently, it helps other people know that we exist.